We're up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 9. Today we're going to do Mishnah number 9 and Mishnah number 10, both of them authored by the same person, Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi was the author of the previous Mishnah, and his son, who was also a great scholar, he is going to be the author of our two Mishnahs, Mishnah number 9 and Mishnah number 10 of chapter 4. Rabbi Shmuel ben Omer, Rabbi Shmuel, his son, says, Someone who withdraws himself from judging. Someone who refrains from being a judge. He removes from himself Eva, hatred, and robbery, and unnecessary oaths. However, someone who is overly self-confident in rendering legal decisions, he's a shota, he's a fool, Russia is wicked and is arrogant. So this is an idea that we should be very uh, hesitant, very reluctant, very reticent to try to provide judicial rulings. And if someone does that, if someone withholds from it, well, then they're avoiding all kinds of pitfalls. Whereas if someone is very confident, then they're a fool and they're wicked and they're arrogant. That's the first teaching. And the next teaching, Mishnah number 10, a very related teaching Omer, he used to say, Al don't be a judge on your own. There's only one who can judge on his own, and that is the one, i.e., that is God. And you should not say, accept my view, you should not be insistent that your comrades accept your view. Because they are permitted to do so, and you are not. These are two teachings, both related, to, apparently, to the judiciary. And we're going to dig into it. But first, let's talk a little bit about the author of this Mishnah, Rabbi Yishmal, the son of Rabbi Yossi. Again, he is the oldest son of the author of the previous Mishnah. We talked all about Rabbi Yossi and the previous uh, Mishnah that we talked about. We have the great Rabbi Yossi and his oldest son, Rabbi Yishmal, the son of Rabbi Yossi. He is the go-to source for his father's teaching. The Talmud tells us that when he was on his deathbed, Rabbi Judah the prince, who was a close colleague of his, he sent a messenger, we have all kinds of questions about your father's teachings. And because he was on his deathbed, he's about to pass, it was very critical to be able to get from him all the teachings that they needed from Rabbi Yossi. After his father passed, we mentioned last week, his father was the rabbi of the town of Tsipori. And after his father passed, he succeeded him as the rabbi of Tsipori. In fact, there is a law that whenever there is a position of leadership and the child of the the previous one who held, held that post is qualified, then, then they should get the first dibs at succeeding their parent. And that's a general rule. You have a king and the king dies. Who is next in line? If the child is qualified, then the child gets first dibs at that, at that post over any, anyone else. And even if it's someone else who is more qualified, if the child is at least qualified, then they, they have the rights to that. So you have a rabbi. The rabbi, the rabbi passes and now there is an empty post. There's a position available if their son or if their child is, is worthy to, to fulfill that post, they get it before anyone else's. Moses, in fact, we're going to read the book of Numbers. He wanted his son to succeed him, but God said, your son's not qualified. Your son's righteous, not qualified, you can't do this particular job, and therefore you have to nominate your disciple, your protege, Joshua, and that's indeed what he did. So there's a few interesting teachings and stories in the Talmud about Rabbi Yishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, that I think fit in very nicely uh, to his 
lessons that he teaches about uh, judicial restraint to not be a judge, to not be eager to be a judge, to be very circumspect as a judge, to try to withhold from judgment, to not be a single judge, and the like. So there's a very wild story in the Talmud about the Romans hiring rabbis to be detectives, to catch criminals. It's an interesting story and it re- relates to Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Rabbi Yossi. And I, I also think if you read the story very carefully, we see his perspective about being a judge is actually exemplified in this story. But it begins not with Rabbi Shmuel, son of Rabbi Yossi. It begins with Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon, we've mentioned in the past, Rabbi Shimon bar he's the one who lived in the cave for 13 years together with his son. And he, he, they were colleagues. So Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, not the author of our Mishnah. And the author of Ramesh, Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi, they were colleagues, just like their fathers were. The two, two of the people, remember last week we spoke about that, you know, there were five sages who were given smicha by this old rabbi before he was killed. One of them is Rabbi Shimon and one of them is Rabbi Yossi. So they were colleagues in their lifetime and their children, their sons were also great sages and also colleagues in their lifetimes. But it tells an interesting story. Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, this is from the Talmud of the Book of Babansia, page 83b. There was an officer, there was a detective, a Roman detective. His job was to arrest the thieves. That was his job. He was a detective to try to find the thieves, try to find the robbers, and to arrest them. And Rabbi Elazar, so Rabbi Shimon, had a problem with that. He says to him, how do you know that you're arresting the guilty parties? Maybe you're arresting the innocent parties. Maybe people you're arresting are actually free of guilt. They're not the criminals that you're looking for. The thieves got away and you got you got the wrong man. You got the innocent man. So the officer responded to him, but what can I do? It's my job. I'm the prosecutor. I got to come up, come up with a warm body to show the king this is the thief. I have to do the job to the best of my ability. And sometimes, of course, that you know there'll be miscarriages of judgment. There's going to be someone who is actually not guilty. And they're going to be implicated in the crime that they didn't commit. But so what? It's my job. But what can I do? Says Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon. He says, I'll teach you how to catch just the criminals. I'll teach you. You think the rabbis, what do they know, right? They know, they know Talmud. No, they know exactly how to catch the criminals. I'll show you how to catch only the only criminals and no one else. Wow, that sounds like amazing. How do you find the criminals? So he says, this is what you do. You go to the pub, go to the tavern. And you go to the four in the fourth hour of the day, specific time of the day, and you find someone who is drinking wine, holding the cup in their hands, but also they're very tired. They're dozing. They must have been up at night. And you speak to that person and start investigating them a little bit. You ask him, what's your background? What do you do? Why are you so tired? And they'll give you an answer. If they're a Torah scholar... You assume they woke up really early and they've been studying or studying the whole night. And now they, you know, they finished studying. They want to, you know, they want to unwind a little bit. They go get a drink and, but they're still tired. Well, then you let the guy off the hook. If he's a Torah scholar, you know, he's not guilty. If he's someone who works really early in the morning and he's been up since, you know, since four, four a.m., he's been working and now it's late in the day. So then you also let him off the hook. He's been up. He's tired. He didn't get enough sleep last night. He needs a drink. He needs to, during his lunch break. He is someone who is not your man. He's not guilty. 
If he, someone who works at night, and you have evidence to know that he's actually a legitimate worker, works at night, then he's also not guilty. But if he's none of these three categories, then you know for sure he's the thief and then you should arrest him. That's all you need to know. You know that he's not, he's been up at night and there's no legitimate reason and there's been a, there's been a theft, you know that he's your guy. Anyhow, this is the advice of Rabbi Allah as to how to arrest just the thieves and not the innocent people. Meanwhile, this message that this rabbi, this very talented rabbi, is has this recipe for catching thieves, it comes to the king. The king discovers it. It goes up the grapevine to the king. And the king's ministers advise him, and they tell him, let the reader of the letter be its messenger. Basically, let the person who came up with this brilliant solution, let them implement it. So they bring in Rabbi Elazar, son of Rabbi Shimon, and they say to him, it's your job now, you've been given this job and this right now, you've been given the, the right to arrest people, you're now in charge of arresting thieves. And he begins arresting thieves. Problem is, where does he work? He works in his neighborhood. Who lives in his neighborhood? There's Jews living in his neighborhood. So some of the rabbis tell him, wait a minute, that's not okay. You're causing other Jews to be arrested by the Romans. So one of the rabbis, Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha, he starts berating Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon. And he tells him, you're not, you're not like your father. Your father was holy. What are you doing? You're arresting fellow Jews? He tells him like this. He says, you're vinegar, the son of wine. Your father's wine. But you got spoiled. There's something wrong with you. You're corrupt. You're arresting Jews. And that's not okay. For how long are you going to be informing on the nation and getting people, the Jewish people, be executed? So basically, he's telling him, you're not as righteous as your father, and you're doing something very wrong by getting Jews arrested, maybe even executed, because you're catching them as thieves. Now, it's interesting. The commentaries interject here with the question. Wasn't his intentions noble? He's being castigated. He's being admonished. He's being reprimanded by the fact that he's arresting the criminals. But what was happening previously? Previously, they weren't arresting the criminals. They're arresting the innocent people. So it's, isn't it better to arrest, if someone's going to get arrested, isn't it better to have the criminals get arrested versus the righteous people getting arrested? That's one of the commentaries asked this question. And the answer that they suggest is that yes, even though the net effect of his efforts was that the guilty people were being arrested and not the innocent people, nevertheless, maybe he shouldn't be the implement to do that. You're a great rabbi, Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Shimon. It's not your job to arrest your fellow Jews. Let the Romans deal with it. Let God deal with it. You shouldn't be the one that's going to contribute towards the Jews being arrested, being imprisoned, being killed, even if they're guilty, even if they are thieves. That, and I think that's going to be very relevant to our Mishnah, as we shall see. Let's hold that thought for a little bit. But anyhow, we have Rabbi Shubin Karcha coming to Rabbi Lazar ben Shimon, and he tells him, you're vinegar, the son of wine. So he responds. He says, no, I don't agree with you. I'm just getting rid of thorns from the vineyard. We talked about the the vineyard, which produces the wine and the vinegar. And you think that I'm corrupting the vineyard. I'm turning the wine into vinegar. No, I'm doing the opposite. I'm clearing away all the weeds and all the thorns so that the wine can actually grow better. And that's why he's he's justifying his behavior to arrest the criminals, the Jewish criminals, by saying these people are a bad influence on our nation. These people don't deserve 
to be protected by us. So Rabbi Shua sends a message back to him, let the owner of the vineyard, i.e. God, let him come and get rid of the thorns. It's not your job to get rid of the thorns. Let, let God do it. If the people are guilty, let God deal with it. You shouldn't be the one to contribute towards uh, towards the demise of your Jewish brethren. Anyhow, so there's a disagreement as to whether or not he should take this job or not. Regardless, one day, a certain laundryman, basically an average Joe, a layperson, he's upset that this rabbi, this great sage, or is arresting the thieves. So he insults him, and he calls him, your vinegar, the son of wine. Now, when the great rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Karcher, calls you that, okay, maybe he could call you that. But when some random laundryman, he is embarrassing the great sage, Rabbi Lezer, the son of Rabbi Shimon, that's not okay. And, and Rabbi Lezer, the son of Rabbi Shimon, says, huh, if this person is insulting me, they obviously don't respect for Torah. And they probably are themselves a criminal. Because why are they so upset at the person who's arresting the criminals. Aren't you happy with the police? The people who are not happy with the police are the people that are trying to avoid the police. So without any evidence of any guilt, he has them arrested. Because remember, now he has the power to arrest them. They arrested him and then they condemned him to die because he's a criminal. But there is no evidence. doesn't matter. He was arrested by Rebelaz, the son of Rebbe Shimon, and he has an impeccable record. He only arrests criminals and therefore this person is condemned to die. But meanwhile, as time goes on, Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, he feels a little bad. I had this laundryman arrested, and now he's going to die, and I have no evidence of any crime. It's only because he he acted in a way that made me think maybe he was criminal, but maybe he's not a criminal. I'm going to go and try to pay off the guards and get a pardon, commute the sentence. So he goes and tries to ransom him, try try buy him back. But he is unsuccessful. He's unsuccessful. And he's sitting there trying to get the guy out of prison. And then he recalls the verse in, in scripture, Shomer piv ulushono, Shomer mitzaros nafsho. Someone who guards their mouth and their tongue prevents themselves from danger. And he says, this person, he spoke out. He didn't guard his tongue. And look what kind of danger he's in now. He is going to be executed. What actually happened? Ultimately, the Romans did what Romans do. And they hanged this laundryman. And Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, he's standing by the gallows and he starts crying. He feels, oh no, maybe I condemned an innocent person to be executed. Meanwhile, his students are there and they're watching him. And they say to him, this laundryman, he's not innocent. In fact, we know for sure that on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, this laundryman, this low life, he assaulted and raped a young girl. Not only him, but him and his son. On Yom Kippur, could you imagine the holiest day of the year, the day that everyone is feeling remorse about their bad behavior, everyone's trying to repent. This person is such a corrupt person. Him and his son, they both raped a, a young girl on Yom Kippur. Good riddance. We're happy to get rid of such scum from, from the earth. Now, incidentally, what's the relevance of his son's sins? Why is it important to mention the fact that he and his son committed that unconscionable act of Kipper? So the commentaries say, interestingly, you know, this person, this laundryman, not only was he such a wicked person in his own behavior, he didn't teach his children properly. 
He didn't raise his children to appreciate, and that actually compounds his own sin. But alternatively, they say, what happens when someone's executed by the Roman authorities? What happens to all their assets? What happens to their estate? It's all taken by the government. And therefore, had his son been righteous, then Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, would feel bad that he caused the son to lose out the money. But now that he discovers the son's also a criminal, okay, it's, it's okay that he loses out his money because he anyhow was uh, was a terrible person. So now, Rabbi Elazar feels vindicated. He's happy. He says, I'm so happy I didn't condemn an innocent person to die. And the way it's described in the Talmud is that he puts his hands over his belly and he says, rejoice my innards. Be happy, my innards, my flesh, because you were just suspicious that this person was guilty. And it turns out you were right. If you were suspicious and you were right, all the more so when you're certain you're going to be right. So now he's confident that he hasn't made any mistakes. He hasn't condemned any innocent people to, to be punished improperly. And then he adds, when someone's a sinner, what happens to their innards? What happens to their flesh after they die? Their flesh is going to be eaten away by worms and maggots. However, when someone's completely righteous, the worms and the maggots have absolutely no foothold. They can't, they can't touch them. So he says to his innards, I know now for sure that you're going to be safe from worms and maggots. I haven't done any mistakes that's going to allow the worms and the maggots to come and gnaw at you. And then he does this test. If you thought this time was, was wild, it's going to get a little bit more wild. He's like, I'm not, I'm not certain. I want to make for certain that I'm not going to be consumed by the worms and the maggots. So he goes to the house of surgery, which apparently was done in a marble home. I guess marble, for whatever reason, maybe it would stave off infection. I don't know. They give him a sedative and they do a surgery and they cut out, they cut open his belly and they take out some of his, of his flesh and they put him in the hot, they put him in the hot sun. In the months of Tammuz and Av, so I think of July and August. And let's see if they putrefy. Let's see if there's, if there's worms coming after it. And they left it there for months. And indeed, no worms and no maggots and nothing came and nothing spoiled this, this flesh. And he says, okay, I know for sure that I'm still righteous despite me taking this very, uh, precarious job of arresting the the Jewish thieves. Meanwhile, the Talmud says, there was another person who was nominated for the same job. Not just Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, another person, the author of our Mishnah, his colleague, Rabbi Yishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi. He too was appointed as the officer to go arrest the criminals. And who came to visit him? Just like we read last week, his father was very close with Elijah, the son was also close with Elijah. And Elijah came and said to him, what are you doing? Why are you informing to the government against the, the children of God, the nation of God, and you're causing Jews to be punished? That was the same question that Rabbi Shua ben Karcha asked Rabbi Elizabeth, the son of Rabbi Shimon, what are you doing? And he gives him the same answer. What can I do? The king gives me, gives me the job. I have to do it. He says, well, I have a solution. Don't you know what your father did? Your father had to escape and he went to Asia. You too should escape and go to Asia. And that's how the Talmud ends. And it seems from the conclusion of the Talmud that indeed 
he didn't take this job of being the judge, of being the jury, being the executioner of Jewish criminals. And he instead said, even though the government's forced me to do this, I'm going to escape. I'm going to go to a place where the government has no jurisdiction because it's so problematic for me to judge other Jews, even the guilty ones, and I'm going to follow Elijah's advice. I'm going to escape. I'm not going to put myself in a position where I'm going to be forced to inform upon the children of the nation of God. I'd rather escape like my father did. So there's obviously a fundamental difference between how Rabbi Elazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, views the judicial process versus how the author of our Mishnah, Rabbi Yishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, views it. And that's, I think, going to be manifested in his teaching. Now, it's interesting. The teachings that we get about Rabbi, Rabbi Yishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, they seem to all relate about the judiciary. And it's interesting, and it's probably not a coincidence, that his teachings in our Mishnah all relate to judgment. So there's one amazing story about him and his sharecropper. So basically, a sharecropper means he owns a field, and someone works in the field, and the person who works in the field gives a percentage of the of the yield to the owner. That's the sharecropper agreement. So the Talmud tells us, the book of Tzubas, page 105b, that he had a field and he had a sharecropper. And every Friday, the sharecropper would come and, and give the yield of the wheat, give a portion of the yield of the wheat, a basket of fruits, to the owner of the field, Rabbi Yishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi. And one day, he arrives on Thursday. And he asks him, he's holding up, he's holding the, the basket of fruits, and he's coming on a different day. Why are you here on Thursday when you usually come on Friday? That's the question that he asks him. So he responds, well, on Thursday, the court is in session. And you, of course, are one of the judges on the court. And therefore, I have a judicial case that I want to present in front of the court. So I'm coming in on Thursday anyhow, and therefore once I'm coming in on Thursday anyhow, I'm going to give you the basket of fruits and I'll save myself a trip from tomorrow. That's what he tells Rabbi Yishmael son Rabbi Yossi. So he responds, I'm not accepting the basket of fruits from you, and I'm disqualified to preside over your case. Why? Because the Torah warns us many times that a judge is liable to be bribed. And when someone is bribed, they become partial and they're disqualified to judge. And therefore, the sharecropper who's giving him something, you can't have that same day him be an impartial judge for the sharecropper. So instead, Rabbi Yishmael, son of Rabbi Yossi, says, I'm not going to preside over the case. I'm not going to be one of the three judges on on the case. I'm going to sit in the audience and I'm going to listen in. And then he describes what, what he, what happened to him as he was listening to the case. So they are judging him. And as he's listening in, he's like, mm, argue like this. He's thinking to himself, you should claim this. You should argue that. Because of course he's a great Torah scholar. And he's just unconsciously taking the side of the sharecropper because he feels a certain, a certain affinity towards him because he brought him the fruits. And then he's thinking about it and he says the following thing. The people who accept bribes, their souls are going to be destroyed. Why? My sharecropper didn't actually give me anything. I said I'm refusing it. I don't want the basket this week. And let's say I would have accepted it. Whose fruits are those? Those are not a gift that he's giving to me. Those are the fruits that I legitimately own. Because, of course, I own the field. And therefore, he's supposed to pay me every week. I didn't accept it. 
Had I accepted it, it would have been mine. And nevertheless, I feel a certain affinity towards this sharecropper and I'm just trying to argue away that he should win the case. All the more so, someone who actually accepts a bribe, they become blinded and they're not capable of judging it fairly. I think it's interesting that, that the stories, the teachings that we get about Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yossi in the Talmud, both of them orient about the fact that someone should not try to be a judge and the fallibility of a human who is a judge. That we're so fickle that if someone gives you even a hint of a bribe, you're already blinded. The great sage who knows, of course, not to accept bribe and understands the Torah and even if he would have gotten the quote-unquote bribe, it wouldn't have been a real bribe because it's his money anyhow. Still, he already felt that he was totally influenced and all the more so, you know, how dangerous it is when someone is a judge that they don't realize how easily they could be swayed. And that is what he's teaching us in our Mishnah. He's telling us, the first thing that he's telling us is to withdraw from judging. Why would you withdraw from judging? You would withdraw from judging if you're, if you're scared about your prowess as a judge. And the commentaries, they each spell it out differently. Rashi, for example, says, don't judge, instead favor compromise. So we know there's the, the strict letter of the law, but there's also a way to settle the case out of court. And that is the preferred method. And you should do that. Alternatively, the other commentaries, they, they understand that what does it mean to withhold from judgment? You should be reticent as a judge. You should yield to the other judges. Regardless what the message of this Mishnah is, you should try to avoid judgment. And if you do that, you avoid three things. You avoid hatred, you avoid enmity. Why? Because what happens when there's judgment? Everyone is convinced, both litigants, both the litigant, the defender, they're all certain that they're right. And then what happens? The judges rule in the favor of one of them. The other one feels slighted. The other one feels anger. The other one feels animus towards the judges. Avoid that if possible. You're also avoiding theft. Why? Because what happens when the judges rule incorrectly? They say you do owe the money to, to, to the other person, to the litigant. What if the reality was that the person does not owe the money? Well, in that case, they took money from this person illegally against justice and gave it to that person. And that is, that, that is tantamount to theft because after all, they're extracting money from someone who doesn't need to give money to someone else. And therefore, you have to be very careful, very circumspect, very wary, very nervous about judgment because you may be doing theft. Moreover, you're going to avoid false oaths. In a Jewish court of law, sometimes there are oaths that are going to be invoked. And people are convinced that they're right and they have a bias and they're going to swear falsely to that effect. And therefore, if you avoid judgment, let's say you say, let's do compromise or let's be very, very wary about what we do, then that attitude is going to avoid these terrible things. However, if someone is overconfident, when someone is pompous, when someone's presumptuous in their ability to be a good judge, then what happens? They're a fool, they're wicked, and they are arrogant. If someone rules quickly, if someone's so confident, if someone doesn't actually ruminate over the case, if someone's eager to make a ruling, they're a fool, they're a sinner, and they're arrogant. And the commentaries explain that these are three different stages of classifications that happen to someone who is very overconfident in judgment. They're a fool. So Rabbi Yonah, he explains that there's, there's the imbecile, 
who really is a fool, and there's someone who who is overestimating their aptitude. This is similar to what we have today in psychology, the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is described over here where people – the people overestimate how much they know. And ironically, people that know least about a subject are the most overconfident. That's what he's talking about over here. If you have someone who is an imbecile, they really know nothing and they know they know nothing. Well, then there's a solution. A, they're not going to judge. They're not going to rule because they don't know. They're ignorant. And B, maybe they'll maybe they'll study. Maybe they'll know. But when someone thinks that they know and they really don't know as much as they think that they know, they don't feel like they need to learn anymore. And they could feel like they have all the tools and all the skills to rule properly. And that's where it gets very dangerous because in that instance, you're going to have someone who's going to rule and not even know that they're making mistakes. And that's that's foolish because you're a fool. You don't realize that you're a fool. That's even worse than being an imbecile. But beyond being a fool, this person is a sinner because they did not realize that people are fallible. People are prone to error. People are prone to making mistakes. And therefore, this person did not sufficiently fear God. This person wasn't careful about very important matters. And when someone is willing to trample over the law and cause people to be responsible to pay things that they don't are, that they're actually not required to do, when someone corrupts judgment and justice, that indeed is a sin. And finally, he says, you're arrogant. And we know in Jewish literature, the worst thing to be described as arrogant, because arrogant is someone who's rejecting God. Someone who says that, you know, I have all my powers that are all self-earned, self-made, when ultimately it all comes from God. And what the mission is revealing is that someone who's very quick to judge, they're actually not doing it for noble intentions. They want to show off. They want to say, hey, look how capable I am. Look, I'm giving, I'm able to give these, these knee-jerk responses. I'm able to right away give you an answer. Without even processing, look how talented I am. Hire me. Let me be your rabbi. Let me be your judge. And that, of course, is terrifying because the proper attitude the judge has to have is to be very deliberate and very circumspect and very careful with a given case to avoid to avoid ruling improperly. And when we have a judge, a judge that just wants to fire off answers, shoot from the hip. Well, in the words of Rabbi Yona, may God save us from people like this. And this theme extends into the next Mishnah. Don't be a judge on your own. Don't be a single judge. Try to get the input of other people. And the commentaries explain that even though normally you need to have three judges for any judicial process, there is a carve-out for a case where there's only one judge. If there's a total expert, then halakhically a single judge can rule a case. But here is being advised to not do it. Even though you can do it, you shouldn't do it. You should be very averse to judging on your own because really the only one that can judge on their own is really only God. And yes, there is a carve-out for someone to judge on their own if they're an expert, etc. But don't consider yourself an expert. Again, the same resistance. Don't be the one to judge other people. Try to shirk judgment. Try to avoid it. Try to get as much input as you can from other people and to not be the one to step up and say, I'm going to judge and I'm going to judge properly. And even when you do judge and you have a team, you have, let's say, two other justices with you in the court, don't insist that they accept your ruling. Don't say, accept my view because they're permitted to their own view And if you can't convince them on the merits, you cannot rule from authority and tell them that they are, they are required to listen to you. 
And the commentaries add, suppose you're the greatest Torah scholar of the whole generation. You may justifiably feel, hey, I'm the greatest Torah scholar, accept my view. No. If you're a judge, there's other two judges with you, you have to listen to them. If they overrule you, if there's two to one, you have to follow their ruling. That's the law, and don't try to insist in your ruling. Now, the Maharal, he does something really interesting. He connects the previous Mishnah, uh, the one that was authored by his father, to this Mishnah. The previous Mishnah was talking about honoring the Torah. If you honor the Torah, you yourself are honorable. What does it mean to honor the Torah? It means to realize the Torah is unfathomably deep. And when someone judges flippantly, quickly, eager to judge, happy to rule, happy to rule myself, when someone does that, they're not honoring Torah. They're not acknowledging that Torah is astoundingly deep. And therefore, the ruling that you think just, you know, at first blush may be actually incorrect. And therefore, when someone is deliberate in judgment, that is the greatest manifestation of honoring Torah. And then he adds, the Maral does, he quotes a verse in Psalms that King David says, I am a convert. I'm a foreigner. I'm a newcomer. And the obvious question that the Midrash asks is, wait a minute, David? David's not a convert. David's not a foreigner. David's not a newcomer. Why is David saying that he's a foreigner, so to speak, vis-a-vis Torah? And the answer is, says the Midrash, that David, even though David was a great Torah scholar, arguably the greatest Torah scholar of his day, he was still saying, I still feel like a newcomer. There's so much Torah out there. And the amount that I know is a lot, relative terms, but vis-a-vis what Torah actually is, I feel like I'm like a total outsider. I feel like I'm a total newcomer and I know nothing. And the explanation behind that is, you know, where does the Torah come from? The Torah comes from the heavenly realms, from the heavenly spheres. From the, It's a different dimension. It's God's wisdom. And we, we come from this world. And therefore, when someone studies Torah, they're crossing over into a new world. And when I stroll, we stroll in Torah, we're exposing ourselves to a different world. But we have to remember that we're really newcomers. We, we've come from a different planet. We're aliens, so to speak, in Torah, because we don't have that necessarily built in. We are participating. We are immersing ourselves in the Torah of a different world. And we have to acknowledge that we don't know it necessarily on the innate level to be able to give these instant rulings. And therefore, it fits into this idea to not judge quickly, to not be eager to judge, to try to avoid judgment, to try to maybe favor a compromise, a settlement at a court, and certainly not to judge on your own. And even when you are with other justices, don't insist that they accept your ruling. There's a famous story, one of the great uh, sages of the 19th and 20th century. His name is Rabbi Chaim Salavechik. Uh, he was the head of the yeshiva in Volozhin. And when the yeshiva of Volozhin closed in 1892, he became the rabbi of the town of Brist in Lithuania. He was known to be this great Talmudic genius. And therefore, because he was such a genius, he would refrain from giving any halakhic rulings. Because any given case, he could find like 500 reasons why it would be okay and 500 reasons why it would not be okay. And ironically, the person who knows more Torah is, is someone to whom this Mishnah really resonates because he could see so many different angles, so many different dimensions, and therefore to give a ruling, it's very difficult. So the story, the story goes that he had a halachic query. 
and he wanted an answer. So he sent the, a letter to one of the other great rabbis, Rabbi Yitzhak Elchan Inspector, one of the great halachic authorities of the, of the 19th century. And he says to him, I want a one-word answer. Either yes or no. That's it. Because if you're going to explain your rationale, I'm sure I could argue with your rationale. Don't explain your rationale. Should be a one-word answer. That's it. I'll accept, I'll, I'll accept your ruling, but I don't want you to justify your ruling because if you do that, I'm not going to be able to, because the Torah, there's, there's so much argument on either side. Just give me the ruling. I'll accept your ruling. But because I appreciate the depth, the profundity of, of, of the Torah, I'm careful that I don't want to myself be a judge. If I, once, once I'm a judge, there'll be too much confusion. And therefore, I want to avoid that uh, as best as possible. So that's the idea that we learn from Rabbi Shmuel, the son of Rabbi Yossi. It's a continuation of the same theme of the previous Mishnah. Torah is vast. Torah is infinite. And consequently, when we want to rule on matters of Torah, we have to be very, very careful that we're not neglecting to properly value Torah. We're not flippant with Torah. And we're not going to rule incorrectly and thereby become a fool, thereby be a sinner, be a thief, cause hatred. It's very dangerous. We should be very aware and very wary of that when we come to judgment.